while the atmosphere was like the mouth of a furnace and the thermometer was over a hundred in the shade. The age, January 22nd, 1875. To the fierce sun of Australia, which tempers men as fire tempers steel. To the gracious sun of Australia, which makes nature teem with bounty. To the glowing sun of Australia, which warms the Early in the afternoon, clouds came rolling over the heavens, obscuring the light of the sun in a most ominous and mysterious manner. There was a lurid glare in the sky. There began to fall thickly over the ground in every direction charred fragments of vegetation resembling fern leaves, which had been burnt to ashes but retained the distinct form of the leaf. By four o'clock, the whole face of nature was enveloped in utter darkness. It never occurred, I think, to anyone that a bushfire could possibly be the cause. James Fenton, Gippsland, 1851. When it gets really hot in the cities and towns dotted around Australia's perimeter, people subtly change. Strangers who'd ordinarily pass without acknowledgement return wary glances, a heightened watchfulness as they survey the shimmering horizon. For radiating from the sun is an invisible threat. Celebrated for its role in our hedonistic lifestyle, the sun's heat also carries menace. More than a few furnace-like days and sweltering nights in a row, and our mortality rate rises alarmingly. Then fires start up in the bush and head towards the suburbs. In small central desert communities, they still sing the fire totem songs, trying to keep the environmental balance right. But our European post-settlement past is dotted with heat trauma and anxiety. It's as if high temperatures erase rational thinking, and our memories prove short as time and again we endure and barely survive the ravaging effects of what the sun's heat brings us. This anxiety around heat, for Europeans at least, has a history that dates back before they came to Australia. David Walker is Professor of Australian Studies at Deakin University. Well, there was a very widespread view. I, I think it's, it's clearly the scientific orthodoxy through to the end of the 19th century that hot climates were detrimental uh, to the health of Europeans. And many of the qualities that were attributed to the British were thought to be cold climate qualities, so that uh, discipline and military prowess and uh, planning and uh, foresight and all these worthwhile attributes, which were so important to building an empire, were likely to be jeopardised once you translated a cold climate people into a warmer climate, so that in this warmer setting, certain kinds of lethargy would set in, certain sorts of torpor would develop, uh, certain lazy habits would, would emerge, uh, a certain intellectual sloth would begin to appear. So there are all sorts of disconcerting signs of the decay of character. In Mexico and Peru, one of the most important articles of food has always been maize, eminently the product of a hot climate. A people who derived their sustenance from a plant of such extraordinary fecundity had little need to exercise their industrious energies, while at the same time they had every opportunity of increasing their numbers. There was almost an obsessive concern with climate in the 19th century, wasn't there, David, as an indicator of racial character. So I was wondering if you could tell us who Henry Thomas Buckle was. Yes, well, Thomas Buckle uh, was a great theoretician of civilizations, the rise and fall of civilizations. One of his arguments was that racial characteristics were determined by climate. And a further extension of that argument was that in tropical climates you tended towards various kinds of uh, dictatorship and extravagance and, uh, and democracies arose from more temperate 
climates. So there's a whole range of speculations about the kind of political systems you might evolve and the sort of characteristics that rulers might display. I like his theories about tropical climates and the consumption of fruit. Yes, well, the fruit-eating propensities that Buckle discerned in uh, tropical climates did have their flow-on effect into character, which is, again, quite an interesting argument, really, in that his, his view was that in tropical climates, fruit-eating was favoured by the availability of fruit and a famous author declared the banana to be the curse of the tropics because of its ready availability. And of course the logic is that you sit under your banana palm in a kind of lazy way and if you're feeling peckish you just grab a banana and that does nothing for, for enterprise and nothing for hard labour and nothing for discipline. So that all sorts of unhappy characteristics and uh, certain kinds of torpor are uh, encouraged by tropicality. Whereas back in a cold climate, you know, things are much tougher and uh, have to be planned for, which requires, uh, you know, a profounder intellect. So intellectual development is seen to be one of the consequences of, uh, of these climatic imperatives as well. A beautiful bunch, a ripe banana. Concerns about living under a tropical sun were publicly and hotly debated, and a strong contingent felt Europeans would never belong to such a climate. Dr Richard Arthur was the MLA for North Sydney, medical practitioner who'd gone into, into politics, and Arthur had all sorts of um, theories about the settlement of Australia. And one of his views was that Australia was radically underpopulated. So his sense was more that old view that Australia was an empty continent, that it had almost uh, unlimited population carrying capacity. And Arthur's view was that you should have Japanese coming into the Northern Territory because in his view, they were climatically attuned to the climate of that region in the way that Europeans weren't. So there were, there were still people around, of whom Arthur was one, who believed that tropical Australia was simply not suited to white settlement at all. I guess this would have undermined Australia's sense of security somewhat. I think it did. I mean, I think there was, a, there was an unease about this. And, of course, if you have a, a deteriorating white race in a continent the size of Australia... The question of what entitlement they had to hold that continent becomes much more important. This anxiety about the climate is utterly foreign, in every sense, to many Aboriginal Australians whose historical connection to country is a living one, no matter how harsh the heat of the sun. Earlier this year, I met up with Alison Anderson, a traditional literature woman from Papunya, a tiny community in the central deserts. She was with her grandmother, Pansy Mappengardi, and her mother, Emma Nungarai, and one of their ancestral dreamings is fire. My two fathers dreaming, two jangala dreaming. The fire dreaming, yeah. Started off at Dwalukulang. Dwalukulang means uh, fire country, yeah. And those two travelled south, and uh, they come back, and the fire followed them back and uh, burned them to death and you can see their bodies in a rock form laying there. Fire is a very strong totem to have, isn't yeah. it? It's not it's different from an animal or yeah, yeah or a bird or yeah, something. It's really, really yeah. um, important dreaming. Yeah. Who were the people that travelled that fire Jangala. Two Jangala men. Yeah. And uh, it's a uh, Jangala and Jambajinba dreaming. Is there a relationship between the fire totem and the water totem they are they separate stories? No, there's a relationship between them because uh, the water is also a jungala jambajinba dreaming and the fire is also a jungala jambajinba dreaming and uh, it just means that the fire can always be extinguished by rain. So you've got to have the two walls. Yeah, to go together and there's different rain dreamings, you know, like starts off at uh, Kalibinba and Chikari and Puyuru and Kalibinba, all water dreaming. Can you tell me what the public words are for that song? 
yeah, just saying that, you know, like, um, give me the rain, you know, this is mine. Yeah. And uh, the hand signals that she was saying is just sort of pointing at it. Blood. Yeah, yeah cloud. Sing it to make yeah. it bigger. Yeah. The fire one. Yeah. You. My grandfather. That's him. Yeah. That's his song. Fire flickered and flared in the landscape of early European settlement. Around the Cumberland Plain, spot fires spread as a tool of the indigenous enemy and as an expression of convict discontent. Paul Collins is a broadcaster and author of Burn, a history of bushfire in Australia. They were lucky in the first two years of settlement. They were starving, but it was fairly mild weather. But from the 1790s onwards, you start to see large numbers of fires occurring in the whole Cumberland Plain area around Sydney. Some of them uh, were the result of Aborigines setting fire to the bush in order to get revenge upon or to, uh, to try to limit or in some way to control uh, European penetration into their land. There's, there's no doubt that it was used defensively by Aborigines. There's also no doubt that many of these fires were lit deliberately by convicts um, who were trying to cause problems for the authorities, and needless to say, many of them had chips on their shoulders. So, so fire became very quickly endemic in the area, and you find in governor's regulations uh, constant warnings about the dangers of fire. People in the past lit fires for, for a whole lot of purposes. Uh, the way that they would present it is they well, basically they were doing it, graziers would be doing it for green pick, as it's called. That is, you know, the, the grass regrows after the fire and you get good succulent grass that cattle and sheep like. And so a, a lot of fires were lit simply to get green pick. I mean, you, you have as reasons as trivial as, well, we wanted to get to a fishing spot on a river, so we basically burnt our way through. Uh, one of the classics, one of the, one of the men said that uh, he was walking through the bush with another guy, and this guy kept lighting matches and throwing them into, into the bush and starting little bushfires everywhere on, on a boiling hot day with a high wind. And when he asked, why are you doing that, he said, I want to let my boss know where I am. So you have these kind of situations where, in order just <laughs> to fix your position and to let other people know, I suppose, you send some smoke signals. My feeling is, as you read the evidence, you, you do get the notion that they lit fires because, basically, they had this um, urge to do it. I think that pyromanic urge uh, was very much a part of, of, of what they were doing. And, frankly, I still think in some cases that it, it's still part still of exists. why people light fires. Down to the ground the stockmen jumped and bared each brawny arm. They tore green branches from the trees and fought for Ross's farm. And when before the gallant band the beaten flames gave way, two grimy hands in friendship joined, and it was Christmas Day. You find this kind of image in Henry Lawson, for instance, um, the fire at Ross's farm uh, poem. The poem is very interesting because it's basically about selectors and squatters, and the selector's son is in love with the squatter's daughter, and it's the fire that becomes the common enemy that unites, if you like, the upper and lower classes, uh, people uh, who traditionally were daggers drawn fighting fires becomes a kind of a thing that breaks down class barriers and it proves uh, rural manhood's ability to be able to deal with the environment, to conquer the environment, to be able to control the environment. It's hard for us to imagine the fear that city dwellers of the 19th and early 20th century felt when faced with repeated days of hot conditions. A summer heatwave was like a spectre, 
invisible but terrifying. For Europeans, entirely at the mercy of climate, with no air-conditioned malls to retreat to, restrictive clothing and inadequate housing, death was a very real outcome. Well over 400 people died in the heatwave of 1939. Heat stress is directly responsible for more deaths than any other force of nature, from bushfires to cyclones and even freezing winters. Tweed or serge suits and hot felt hats were worn by as many perspiring men as in winter, and record weekday crowds baked on the beaches in the burning sun. To the Australian, all this is commonplace, but recent arrivals from Europe are astounded. They think that, as the climate cannot be altered, men should adapt themselves to it. They suggested that Sydney men do not take their summer intelligently. Sydney Morning Herald, 10th of January, 1939. Then, as now, it was the elderly and the very young who were most at risk. Janet McCalman is Professor of History at the University of Melbourne and her research shows nursing mothers and their newborns, particularly the poor, were terribly vulnerable. In the late 1800s, an extraordinary 50% of newborns did not survive the long, hot summers. Doctors of the time, like William McKenna, were desperate to find out why. What was special about that time was that there were a lot of heat waves close together and that they tended to be a bit longer. And uh, it's that lack of breathing space between them which was really difficult to handle. And so that, that's the, the, the major difference between that and other periods, I think. Dr William McKenna was an immigrant doctor in Melbourne who was very sensitive to the impact of heat on particularly infant survival. And he was observing a society where a lot of babies were being born to recent immigrants or to families who had just formed because their parents had been convicts in Van Diemen's land and freed and managed to get to the mainland. And people were living in terrible circumstances in which to have babies. They were living in tents and humpies and sheds and places put together very roughly with no sanitation. And add heat to that and above all add flies, then you've got a diabolical environment to rear a young baby. And so infant mortality was extraordinarily high. We've got no idea how high, but I would be thinking that at least half the babies born to poor people were dying. And certainly with babies also, the, the real danger with diarrhoea and hot weather is dehydration and then the, the core body temperature goes up. And so the, the core body temperature rises and, and that causes the stress. Interestingly, the people who brought knowledge of how to manage hot weather were those, and there were a lot of them, who'd been in India. And there's a lovely bit in Georgiana McRae's diaries of a friend who'd been an army officer in India who taught her that when they had these very hot nights, you wrapped yourself in a wet sheet and slept on the floor. Let's let's talk about the heat wave of 1875. Can you in Melbourne? Can you paint us a picture of the city on 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 a hot summer day? Well, there's two sort there's two pictures that come to my mind of of where life would be tough. One would be a suburban one, and the streets in in South Melbourne or North Melbourne, uh, which are very wide. There's no tra trees at that time. There's absolutely no shade, and you've got lots of houses with even made of corrugated iron all over. You've got lots of flies because there's horse manure everywhere mm -hmm. and there's also human waste everywhere because people didn't have public lavatories. You've got a lot of homeless people, so they went to the toilet in the street and up the lanes. So you've therefore got a, an enormous population of flies. But the, the, the whole combination of extreme heat and the terrible north wind, and that's really what is the killer in Melbourne and Adelaide. It's that hot north wind, which they used to call a brick fielder. And when you've got hardly any trees, because all the big shade trees still hadn't grown, they'd just been planted, uh, when you've got no insulation in your buildings and you've got all this dust, 
and the streets are full of dried manure. You've got this horrible combination of sort of filth, heat and a burning wind. So they called us this brick fielder, which it felt like the heat wave that came off a furnace that was roasting bricks. And one of the major problems was that it was very hard to get water. Water had just been laid on and piped from the Yanyin Reservoir, but you had to be in the city and in a property to be able to get that water, plus the supply soon proved to be very inadequate and that the pressure was poor. And so in hot weather for the next 20 to 30 years, often the water supply would fail altogether. People bought water from water cellars and the water was usually taken from the Yarra, which by then was already heavily polluted with human sewerage. So that people really tried to avoid drinking water because it made them sick. And that's one of the reasons that people preferred alcohol, because water drinkers actually risked their health. So alcohol of various kinds was the normal beverage that people drank. So often you find actually babies die because their mothers give them alcohol and they're giving them alcohol to try and stop them crying, uh, to make them sleep, and because that's the only beverage there is. Now, the problem with the pipe water supply was that the pressure was so bad, and that still in the 1870s, when there were very hot days, the water supply would fail altogether. January 22nd, And there were pitiful stories in the 1875 heat wave. Women and little children were crying for water while the atmosphere was like... The water had failed and the police reported that women and children were crying pitifully in the street for water. And in South Melbourne, the police station had to start handing out cups of water because there was just no way people could get anything to drink. That went on for much longer and it would still take half an hour to fill a kettle in North Melbourne on the hill, the Hotham Hill, in the 1950s. As a mother of a newborn in that heatwave of 1875, what were you dealing with? I think it's the same thing that mothers face now, that you've got a baby that's needing to drink, but you yourself are very hot and possibly not getting enough fluid, so your milk supply goes down. But the more you feed the baby, the more you sweat and the baby sweats, and then the baby gets too fretful to suck. And so... The baby's getting it really overheated and today we know to keep babies cool and to let them to have no clothes on and kick freely and cool down. And, but that just simply wasn't understood. You so, also talk about swaddling for infants. Well, babies were also tended to be wrapped up. I mean, one of the mysteries is how mums coped with babies before nappies and before people had enough cloth for nappies... In Europe, babies were swaddled, which is they were wrapped up in sort of material, uh, like in a permanent bundle, and presumably just fouled that bundle. And often they, the swaddling was kept on for months. But one of the problems that the doctors used to get very concerned about was the prevalence still in Melbourne of people holding on to a, a folk belief that one of the causes of illness was the night air and that night air by definition was dangerous. And so traditionally in England, you always shut the house and shut the windows to keep out the night air because that brought disease. Well, it did in winter because it brought cold, but they kept doing that in the middle of summer in Melbourne. And doctors would complain of, of the terrible smell in houses and the lack of ventilation uh, and the lack of oxygen because sick rooms, children's rooms, were always shut up rather than opened up. So that was a great battle by the medical profession to get people to get fresh air and open up to the outside. The heatwave conditions that horrified city dwellers were harnessed ruthlessly by the settlers. Fire was a most effective land clearer, particularly if set at the right time. And in this sense, it was an ally to the settlers, if not the bush. Well, um, widespread burning to clear land really comes with the squatters. They, they begin to arrive in the late uh, 1820s and, and the squatting age goes, goes right through, I suppose, effectively to the 1850s. And their main tool for clearing was burning. 
They simply burnt the landscape in order to clear it, in order to make it useful for sheep grazing particularly and to a much lesser extent for agriculture, but basically... How did they actually go about burning the landscape? I mean, what was the best way to do this? (laughs) (laughs) Well, very quickly they developed this kind of sense that the best time for burning was high summer uh, because this was when the land was driest and and a good effective burn could clear a very wide uh, land area. And that gradually became from squatting times but then right through through the gold rushes and beyond the gold rushes, that became the kind of accepted wisdom in the bush. You waited for a really good day, and a really good day meant boiling hot after a drought with high wind, and it was then that you most effectively cleared the landscape. One of the kind of examples of this this mad burning, and I think as we look at it in perspective, we would have to say that there's a certain madness built into it, Uh, was the clearing of the Streslecki Ranges, which effectively were a magnificent and extensive cool-temperate rainforest that stretched basically from inland from Western Port Bay across South Gippsland to what I suppose today would be Port Albert and Yarram. So settlers moved into that area in the late 1860s onwards into the Streslekkis. And the way that they cleared the land was to ringbark trees. They ringbarked the mountain ash. They then waited for the right day and then set fire to the bush. The kind of culmination, I suppose you might say, the consummation of the madness of the clearing of the Streslekis uh, basically occurred at the end of the 19th century when the whole area went up in a massive fire. And uh, there's a famous uh, painting of it uh, by Longstaff, the fires in Gippsland. And, uh, I mean, that area today, when you, when you look at it, you realise what an enormous tragedy that clearing was. And so I think that what happened was that many, many people were alienated from the bush. But it really struck me, for instance, uh, at the Royal Commission that was held after the 1939 fires, the Stretton Royal Commission, uh, that hardly any of the witnesses showed any concern whatsoever for the bush. Native animals were constantly referred to as vermin. That was the way that kangaroos, that wallabies, possums, they were all referred to as vermin. In fact, out of all of the witnesses that appeared before Stretton, from memory there are about 280 of them, only a handful show any sense of the, the, of the native environment or any concern for that environment. But in between firestorms and horror heatwaves, and even without today's protective technology, Australians kept swinging towards optimism about the climate. It was a strange national phenomenon of forgetfulness that once the summer's heat and fires retreated, 19th and 20th century Australians continued to believe this incredible climate could only bring good things to newcomers. Robert Dixon is Professor of Australian Literature at the University of Sydney. I think you're touching now on one of the key tensions that runs right through 19th century art and literature, and that's this tension between broadly speaking, a realism and a realistic approach and a more romantic approach to life in the Australian bush. Realism and romance tend to organise the idea that Australia is either benign and a bountiful place to settle, that welcomes settlement, or that it's a harsher place that tends to resist settlement and strips European people of their veneer of of civilisation and makes them discover something else in themselves. All the vast extent of yellow plain to the eastward quivered beneath a fiery sky. Mrs Buckley, in the character of a duchess, was picking raisins, and Mary was helping her. And, as I entered, laughing loudly, they greeted me kindly with all the old sacred good wishes of the season. I very much pity you, Mr Hamblin, said Mrs Buckley, at having outlived the novelty of being scorched to death on Christmas Day. My dear husband, please refresh me with reading the thermometer. 109 in the shade, replied the Major with a chuckle. Ah, dear, 
protested Mrs Buckley. If the dear old rheumatic creatures from the almshouse at Clear could only spend tomorrow with us, how it would warm their old bones. Fancy how they are crouching before their little pinched grates just now. Maybe we could talk about the recollections of Geoffrey Hamlin. In yes, well, that's, that's a very good place to start because that is really one of the foundational novels in the 19th century canon. It was published, uh, written, of course, by Henry Kingsley and published in London in 1859. And it's about a group of families who leave England during the economic depression after the Napoleonic Wars and come to the colony in search of a new life. It's a romance about the expanding empire. It's an immigrant makes good story. And they come to take up land in the southeast part of the continent. And the chapter which marks their arrival in Australia begins with the biblical exclamation, a new heaven and a new earth. And the light, the sense of light and warmth, let's say, rather than heat, are the key markers of that sense of the bounty of the new world for these settlers. The birds are lit by light as they flit through the trees. The southern ocean gleams. And even a big point is made about the heat of Christmas in, in contrast to the British Christmas. That actually became a, quite a commonplace in 19th century art and writing, the, the idea of having Christmas uh, in the height of summer. So the light and heat become images of the bounty of this new Eden. That kind of writing then went right out of favour at the end of the century. Why then? around Federation? Well, Kingsley, don't forget, was a British-born writer and he was an immigrant writer who eventually returned himself to Britain. And the 1890s was a time of emergent cultural nationalism and his romantic vision was rejected as, as really unreal by that generation who were looking for distinctive markers of the Australian identity. His book was criticised in the Sydney Bulletin by its editor, A.G. Stevens, and the novelist uh, Joseph Furphy described it as romantic twaddle. And he, he described his own novel, such as Life, as having a temper democratic and a bias offensively Australian, which, of course, has become a very famous phrase. You're listening to Hindsight on ABC Radio National. I'm Gretchen Miller, and we're exploring a cultural history of heat and fire. Dick Kimber is a historian and writer from Alice Springs who spent the past 30 years working with central desert Aboriginal communities. The fire Europeans so misunderstood was part of daily life for Aboriginal people. There is simply no night I've ever been out in the deserts travelling where you don't have fires. And the fires are used in a way that, say, there were 10 people well, I'll use an example I can think of with a wonderful old character called Dinny Jabaljarian. What you do is you have a... They're not that big of fires, but you have a very big log that is ready to be pushed in all the time and so that you have a fire there and then the next fire is less than a metre away and you've got a little sand high that you scoop out for a bit of comfort. Uh, you'll stop because there's good mulga. You don't... You don't keep travelling until, oh, I wonder where we've got to go. And uh, so you have these little hollows with a fire on each each side of a person. And uh, also uh, we were travelling a group of Aboriginal men and myself as a white man, and the Dindy Jabaljari made sure that I was next to him because in their terms I'm in his brother-in-law relationship. So you actually also have relationships influence how you... Uh, have the fires. Now that's one way. Uh, in the super cold weather, everyone starts off the morning with a fire stick, pushing it every time you wake up in the night because you're cold, someone pushes the big log of wood into the fire so that the fire keeps going. Uh, I've seen the children as, uh, as soon as they're toddlers, they learn fire. It's disappearing the same as it disappeared from most most people's lives on earth is this fantastically fine knowledge of fire. But uh, out west when I've travelled, the children learn fire straight away. They pick up a, a stick out of the fire. The parents don't dissuade them, they just watch it. They pick up a bit of bark that's burning or something and they wave it around and it goes out and they, then 
the parents will encourage them to push it back in the fire. Then in the morning they'd get a fire stick out of the fire and hold it close to your body so you get maximum warmth as you walk along and then light these big tussocks of spinifex and they they flare. I mean, they give out a huge amount of heat. It's very resinous stuff, spinifex. So you're constantly giving you burning the spinifex tussocks, burning primarily to keep yourself warm in that time. How incredible then to compare the literal and psychological scale of the European experience of the bushfire out of control. The Victorian fires of 1939 killed at least 71 people, though many more who were living rough would have perished. 69 mills were destroyed, logging towns obliterated and millions of acres of forest went up in flames. Blinded by smoke, deaf from the tremendous jet engine roar of the flames and without telephones or radio, families had to fend for themselves. Once started, the fires were so powerful, they created their own gale-force winds. Such was the force of the wind that, in many places, hundreds of trees of great size were blown clear of the earth, tons of soil with embedded masses of rock still adhering to the roots. For mile upon mile, the former forest monarchs were laid in confusion, burnt, torn from the earth, and piled one upon another as matches strewn by a giant hand. Leonard Stretton, report of the Royal Commission into the causes and measures taken to prevent the bushfires of January 1939. I think the thing that people found most fearful is that they didn't have any communications. They didn't know what was happening. They found themselves isolated in the bush. They knew that they were on their own. There wasn't any fire brigade or country fire authority or whatever to come and protect them. They knew that it, you know, their survival depended upon their own ability either to stop the fire or to escape from the fire. There's this famous case of Mrs. Mary Robinson down in the near Colac in Victoria, and the fire that killed four of her children came basically out of the Otway Ranges. And she says that they were in the house and they had absolutely no idea what was happening. Mm. They didn't know what to do and the fire was on top of them before they even realised. And so they, they had to shelter on a little bit of cleared area, or I suppose basically a little bit of grass in front of their house in the kind of a home garden. Um, and while she and her husband and three of her children were okay, four of her children uh, panicked and ran, and they were confined there for something like three hours before they could go and check to try and find where their children were, and of course only to find that the children had been burnt. The debate over how to interpret the Australian climate as an indicator of cultural identity continued to roar in the 19th century. The push was on to sacrifice the romantic viewpoint for a harsher interpretation of the landscape, a thing to come to terms with and embrace. Fire and heat were an essential part of the discussion, and there were two main protagonists whose staged arguments in poetry published in the weekly bulletin, made for great entertainment. Well, the, the two major figures, of course, are A.B. Banjo-Patterson, who by the 1890s was the, the most famous and best-loved poet in Australia, and, of course, the poet and short story writer Henry Lawson. And uh, during the 1890s, they engaged in a very, very public debate or exchange over the nature of literature, whether it should be romantic or realistic in its style and vision. As if these things can be decreed or uh, described. Well, I think it wasn't so much a matter That's of right. decreeing them as, as, as at, at stake was the very nature and definition of what life in Australia was like and what the Australian character arising from that environment would be like. So how did that reveal itself, I guess, in terms of heat and light? Well, probably the most famous romantic image of light is in Patterson's poem Clancy of the Overflow, which has that contains that famous line, he sees the vision splendid on the sunlit plains extended. And you'll recall that the, the speaker in that poem is 
a mate of Clancy's who now works in a, in a city office and he's thinking of Clancy out there in the Queensland outback and the city is grimy and dirty and without light and implicitly unhealthy and this mate imagines Clancy out there in the kind of bountiful healthy outback where he sees the vision splendid on the sunlit plains extended and at night the wondrous glory of the everlasting stars. If we bring Lawson into that, Lawson, in the same way that Furphy rejected Kingsley's romantic vision, Lawson thought this was a lot of romantic twaddle as well. And he argued that, uh, in fact, this romantic vision was seriously mistaken. In a, in, a, in a very famous trip to Burke in 1892, Lawson had a kind of turning point where he really experienced the drought and the dryness and in the next year 1893 he wrote a famous article called Some Popular Australian Mistakes in which he published a, a, a list of 23 dot points as it were where he thought writers like Patterson had got it seriously wrong. <laughs> and yet he loved it still I think. Yes, oh yes. Well it be precisely because it became a badge of the new identity as forming a particular Australian character. Sunny plains, great Scott, those burning wastes of barren soil and sand, with their everlasting fences stretching out across the land. Desolation where the crow is, desert where the eagle flies, paddocks where the loony bullock starts and stares with reddened eyes, where, in clouds of dust enveloped, roasted bullock drivers creep slowly past the sun-dried shepherd dragged behind his crawling sheep. Stunted peak of granite gleaming, glaring like a molten mass, turned from some infernal furnace on a plain devoid of grass. The brutally harsh country that Lawson acknowledged and admired could be as relentless to its Aboriginal inhabitants as to the Europeans. Drought hit hard in Central Australia and death came very slowly. It was a balmy winter day of 28 degrees when I spoke to historian Dick Kimber but he describes an almost unimaginable transformation of the landscape in searing summer. Daily survival here depended on tiny gestures people made towards sustenance, while the desert sun leached the life from everything. When things got worse and worse, you went to your second choice foods and your third choice foods, maybe your fourth choice foods. And one of those that uh, Norman Tyndale is a wonderful recorder ethnographer really he recorded the people in the 29 drought when they they came in perishing and many of them died they used to get the there's a hairy processional caterpillar which if you ate it lightly cooked you would die because it caused your throat to swell and so they had to burn the the hairs off it and uh, make sure you know squash it to get anything outside of its innards and and then eat that with with real trepidation, but but that was your last full boy thing. Or you gathered the dried out kumparapa. It's called one of the one of the solanums, and a super dried out raisin. And the women would grind that up into a powder and mix it with a bit of water. And you, you would both get a tiny bit of nourishment from it. But you might also get diarrhoea out of these sorts of problematic issues. So you're sort of a dilemma situation with these fallback, super fallback uh, situations, or uh, they might be the more bitter, bitter things that you don't normally have at all. But uh, again, old Nosepeg Gibraltar showed me one that's super bitter, but he used to just put it in his, between his teeth and bite on it, and all the poisonous seeds in it would go out and then you could eat the little tiny husk of husk of fruit. To the fierce sun of Australia, which tempers men as fire tempers steel. To the gracious sun of Australia, which makes nature teem with bounty. To the glowing sun of Australia, which warms the heart, enkindles the eye, 
ruddies the cheek. This in tribute. Frank Fox, Dedication to the Sun, 1910. The debate about European suitability to the climate had continued. But the voices of those like Frank Fox, the editor of the bulletin offshoot The Lone Hand, were getting louder. Regularly published in the bulletin was socialist, patriot, republican, white Australia advocate and prolific writer Randolph Bedford. And he was also arguing hard that in fact the heat of the Australian climate was entirely suited to a new nation. There's no innovation as in Java or Singapore. It's Australian, not tropical heat. I hate cold and snow as I hate death. And cold is death. It is the people with the greatest capacity for enjoyment who love the sun. The man who hates heat is half dead already. Yes, Randolph Bedford was a great theoretician of climate and, and a uh, climate patriot, really. And there were quite a few of them. I mean, around the Bulletin and the Lone Hand and among Australian nationalists, there was a tendency to see the climate in much more patriotic and invigorating terms, so that they were well aware of the Foster-Fraser argument that, that we lacked vim and energy. But the counter-argument was that uh, cold climates were um, debilitating and innovating, you know, to try and survive a British winter would do nothing to the physical strength of the population. And a lot of those arguments were also fuelled by the concerns around the Boer War, just how, how weedy and emaciated and uh, sickly looking so many of the soldiers were coming out of the British slums. So that the sense of, of there being a physiological benefit from the Australian climate was promoted by people like Bedford, who, as you say, tried to differentiate the Australian climate from the debilitating tropical climates to, to Australia's north. So he saw Australian heat as invigorating and energising and beneficial. So what kind of Australian did this heat build? Well, in, in Bedford's case, it built a person who spent a lot of his time being incredibly vigorous. And I think there was, there was a sense in which you had to act out the script for invigorating Australia. So a lot of the arguments about physical prowess, about sporting prowess, about athleticism, I think owe something to this desire to prove the physical benefits of the Australian climate. You know, you had to not only proclaim these benefits, but you had to, uh, if you like, enact them. And so I think there was quite a bit of that going on, quite a, quite a bit of ostentatious vigour. The quintessential Australian character, so bitterly fought over in the 19th century, was evolving into the 20th. The cavalier machismo towards fire subtly altered in the aftermath of the Stretton Royal Commission into the 1939 bushfires. Around the same time, the climate again was seen as nurturing and rehabilitating. What I think Stretton achieved in doing at the Royal Commission was that he actually was able to focus how insane uh, so much rural behaviour was. As one of the forestry officers said uh, to Stretton, he said, you know, what you have is this mentality of burn, burn, burn. But what Stretton did was that he, he focused what was really happening in the bush. The, another element is, of course, that in the post-war period is, is the rural population uh, falls substantially. The other thing that comes out of it is a kind of a scientific approach to bushfires starts to begin and you have Harry Luke and Alan MacArthur were the first uh, two CSIRO scientists to really kind of look at the dynamics of bushfires. They're the ones who, of course, developed the procedural or preventative burning strategies that are still around today. You also have, as a result of Stretton, the organisation in a real sense of the country fire authorities in the various states. But it's the Second World War that in a way shows how you can organise things, you know, the kind of army model. Volunteers start to wear uniforms. State governments become much more aware that they've got to, got to equip all of these organisations to be able to fight fires, and so money starts to go into it. 
So when did the tropical climate gather the, the mantle that it wears today in Australia? Yes, the, the rehabilitation of heat is a really interesting question and the timing of that is an interesting question. I, I think you can start to see it emerging quite early on I mean, and certainly in that argument about the Mediterranean attributes, all those wonderful artistic and playful qualities and the love of colour and outgoing characteristics and all the rest of it suggest a kind of people who are much more playful, if you like, much more relaxed, much more capable of enjoying themselves. So once you get into a, a society that has more leisure and a society that is um, consuming holidays and, and, and holidays become part of a lifestyle choice, then I think the sun starts to look to be an attractive quality and, and sun connects to, to leisure, to play, to enjoyment and to certain kinds of pleasurable consumption. So from the 1950s, as you also have air conditioning beginning to take the edge off some of the more um, you know, innovating aspects of, uh, of heat, you can start to draw benefits from your place in the sun. So the sun is uh, dramatically rehabilitated, I think, in that uh, post-war period. Just recently, I was working on the edges of the Tanami Desert in Western Australia. The air was gritty with smoke and fine particles of burnt grass. Spot fires were burning all around. Camping at night, the horizon was a long, low line of flame. But this less intense fire didn't quite bear the menace of the foolish and dangerous firelighting that destroyed much of the forests of the southern states. In the grasslands of the inland deserts, firelighting is a practicality. So let's finish with Veronica Lulu from the sacred country around Lake Gregory, or Paraku, speaking about spot burning for hunting and for signalling. When people go to Holswick, or Palco, Malan, or ride around the lake, they light fire. People know. That means people got problem with their vehicle. No water, no fuel, something wrong with tire, or radiator, or engine. Well, that's a signal, they light fire. And other thing, we burn the Finifex for bush, turkey, guana, kangaroo, and blue tongue, and black-head snake, or bush tucker. Why do you burn the spinifex? So people can go hunting. We can see the tracks and follow the track to hole or to the water or to the hills. And then the grass grows up again? Yeah, grows up again, we light it. 